Log Talk Radio. Log Talk Radio. to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, and joining me tonight is co-host Natan Elaine Kemp. Welcome, Natan. Thank you, Bernice. It's great to be here. Well, great to have you. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, and I'm very excited about our guest tonight. Oh, so am I. Well, I also want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. You can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Central, excuse me, 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, 7 p.m. Mountain, and 6 p.m. Pacific. I think I covered everybody, where I will have a wonderful lineup of experts who will share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. All of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. If you have logged in as a guest and wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions of the guests. Following the show, you're invited to post comments or questions on the Genealogy and History Forum of AfroGenius.com. When they time, you know, in the beginning we said we were we have been really looking forward to this show. And I can tell you, this is one of those topics that I I really don't know a whole a lot about. What about you, Nathan? I have to say, I don't know a whole lot about the topic myself before reading this book, but this is why this book is so important. I think about growing up, uh, taking history or social studies classes when I was in grade school and high school. I was never exposed to anything like this. Well, nor was I. But we now have someone who has really taken time to just study study the history, put the history in a book that I think is something that we can just spread the word and get everybody to read and understand about the African-American odyssey of John Kissel. The author of this book, Kevin Lothar, uh, documents the life of a Sierra, Sierra Leonean who survived slavery in Charleston, South Carolina, and served with the British forces during the American Revolution. 
he eventually returned to his homeland where he campaigned among his people to end the slave trading. Now, Kevin majored in history before joining the Peace Corps and teaching in 1963 and 64 at the Sierra Leone Grammar School in Freetown. In 1971, he helped to found the non-governmental organization AfriCare. Many of you will know about Africa, I'm sure, and later managed its humanitarian organization, uh, the programs in Southern Africa, for 29 years. He retired in 2007. So let me give a warm welcome to Kevin Lawther to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Kevin, welcome. Thank you very much, Bernice and Natan. I'm I'm really so happy to have you come on the show tonight. I I remember when you started telling us about the story of John Kissel, and I immediately turned to you and said, well, "Would you please come on the show? You have to share this with everyone." So let's start at the beginning. Please share with the listeners what prompted you to begin the exploration of the life of uh, John Kissel. Well, you know, Bernice, it really goes back to when I was teaching in in Sierra Leone. One of the uh, subjects I was given to teach was African history. And, of course, I knew nothing about African history. That Mm -hmm. wasn't taught. Uh, in colleges uh, when I was going to college in in the U.S. And starting then, I I started educating myself first about African history, and then when I came back to the States, about African-American history. And I've been educating myself ever since. And that's basically what led me down many, many paths of research uh, culminating in this book. And in a sense, it's a closing of the circle for me because it, it's taken me back to Sierra Leone almost 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's been a very fulfilling experience. Well, it, it, I can imagine it, it being a fulfilling experience. Uh, you certainly tackled a very complex uh, issue. So let's put into context, when was John Kissel born and taken into slavery? He was born uh, in Sierra Leone, what is now Sierra Leone, uh, probably in the year 1760. And when he was about 13, he was kidnapped uh, in a slave raid on his uncle's village and put on a ship to Charleston, South Carolina. And so he arrived there probably around this time in 1773. So we know. So you you actually have the, his age, and you you know it was from his uncle's. You say his uncle's village. His uncle's village. Many years later, he told uh, British governors in in Sierra Leone about this uh, portion of his life. <clears throat> That's how we know roughly when he was born, approximately when he was taken as a slave, and where he came as a slave to Charleston. Now, you know, when when looking at the whole African slave trade, uh, how many about how many Africans were enslaved during the Middle Passage? Just to give us a context of what we're dealing with. Well, <clears throat> this, some of the figures may surprise you, and and for your listeners, uh, let me refer them to uh, uh, something that they can access on the internet, and that's the Transatlantic <clears throat> Slave Trade Database. 
and this records close to 90% of all of the slave ship voyages ever undertaken. Uh, there are excellent records <clears throat> because most of these voyages were insured. Now, <clears throat> the best figures that are available indicate that, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, mm-hmm. about 12.5 million people uh, were taken from the African shores over the course of the hundreds of years that the slave trade operated. <clears throat> About half of them uh, went to Brazil. Another quarter or so went to the British colonies in the Caribbean. About 305,000 were destined for America, and about 252,000 of them actually lived to step on shore in the new American colonies. So it's a relatively small number of people, actually, as part of the 12.5 million who were taken. It's just daunting just to hear those numbers, though. Well, statistics are, you know, they're always subtle. And uh, I I was surprised at some of these statistics myself. Most people don't realize uh, how many people were actually taken to Brazil, uh, to Cuba, uh, to Jamaica and, and many of the Caribbean islands. Um, and really, that relatively small number of people were brought to uh, the American colonies. And, you know, with this small number, what type of, you know, documentation did you find uh, that described the life uh, that these enslaved people led in South Carolina in the, let's say, the late 1700s. Right. Uh, the focus of this book, of course, is on John Kizzle, and Kizzle really did not, uh, fortunately for him, uh, was not taken to a uh, rice or indigo plantation uh, where he probably would have died very young. Uh He lived in Charleston as a slave, and there the mortality was considerably less among slaves and among whites as well. Um, What we know about slave life in Charleston is largely through the work of several historians. Uh, There are very, very few, in fact, literally no documents available produced within the black community or by people who were enslaved in Charleston. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we know relatively little about about that community. Uh, But in the book, I've tried to paint uh, a picture of an African-American, a black community in Charleston that basically was a majority community in the city and which controlled much of the space, let us say, of people's lives. there is documentation that uh, blacks in Charleston at that time uh, controlled much of the economy of the, the city, uh, the food markets, the fishing, uh, the ships, uh, you know, the boats that went up and down the rivers and along the coast, uh, which meant that they controlled, in a sense, the, uh, the passage of communication as well. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this didn't last <clears throat> many years beyond the Revolution, but during that period of Kizzle's presence there, he was part of a functioning African-American community 
that really uh, was in a position to control much of its daily life. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was one of the things that surprised me most when I was doing the research. Well, that is quite surprising um, to to know that he, they had that that degree of freedom. And um, it, say more. <laughs> well, you know, to use the word freedom in that context is a little uh, odd, but uh, you're correct. Um, in a sense, many of the Africans who were deposited on the shores there, um, although they were slaves in one sense, they may have had a greater degree of uh, freedom in terms of what they did with their time and their lives. Um, it, it's, it really sounds contradictory, but um, in spite of the laws that existed on paper to control slaves, um, blacks in Charleston at that time could pretty much go anywhere and do anything. You had slaves who rented their own apartments. You had slaves who had their own horses. Um, so they were able to create a, a space, if you will, for for their own lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and you learn this in, in part by reading the newspapers of the time in Charleston where whites were continu- constantly complaining about the fact that blacks were just moving around the town, doing this, doing that, um and and there was nothing that they they could really do about it mm-hmm. um again that would change in the decades to come and and uh you know I do touch on some of that <clears throat> later on but but in the the years leading up to the revolution and immediately uh, afterwards Charleston was a a very different city than you might imagine Kevin, you you mentioned um, talking about pre-Revolutionary War Charleston. I recall reading in your book about the role of black women dominating the markets, which I found very interesting. I remember taking a class, a history course in college called The Emergence of the Third World, and it talked about the impact of, of Europeans colonizing India and China, how they helped liberate women, but in West Africa, they had sort of a negative impact because the women there were your merchants. And do you know if, for some reason, the fact that women were dominating the markets in South Carolina and Charleston, did that carry over from what they were doing back in their native land? Well, I I think you can make that assumption, but I did not come across any uh, clear documentation to that effect. But my own ex- long experience of living in Africa and traveling, I've spent about 13 years of my life on the continent. Uh, wherever you go, it's the women who who really control the traditional markets. And uh, I think this was almost certainly true in Kizil's homeland, um, and that many of the <clears throat> the people who were brought to Charleston uh, the women slaves that they 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 had had some experience in marketing and uh, uh, some rudimentary skills at least in terms of handling money or things of value. Um, so I think you can make that assumption, but I think it's an area which uh, you know probably could do with some some very very good research. 
Now, you know, you spoke of of uh, Kissel uh, basically being captured at the age of 13. And were you able to find the circumstances uh, that led to him being captured and, and sent to America? Well, he told the story uh, many years later when he returned to his homeland. Uh, and this was a story recorded by uh, a British governor uh, in around 1810. Uh, he told the story that uh, he had gone on a visit to his uncle's village, uh, the uncles in African cultures are very often more important than the father. And uh, he was in the uncle's village, and I think the first night they were there, they were attacked um, by slave raiders, not European slave raiders, but African slave raiders, and, and seized. Now, the story he told was that his father, who was a chief, or a headman in this in another village tried to ransom him, and this is also a little mind-boggling for people on this side of the Atlantic. But the father was actually a slave owner himself, mm-hmm. which was not at all unusual. And so the father said, "Well, he would trade two or three of his slaves to get his son back, and whoever had taken the boy refused." to make such a trade. And the next thing we know, he's he's on a ship bound for Charleston. Now, the, in the book, I go into some other details that <clears throat> Kizzle also talked about uh, later in life, um, his apparently being accused of being a witch. Yes. <clears throat> but that was, you know, if that was true, it was probably just a, a means by which to uh, uh, put him on board the ship. Uh, it was very common if you wanted to send someone abroad as a slave, you just said, oh, he's he or she is a witch. Uh, mm-hmm. Put him in chains, put him on the ship, and, and we'll be done with it. Okay, so he's on the ship, he's on the way to Charleston. What resources did you use to gain insight into the slave sales and auctions that occurred in Charleston? Well, again, this may surprise you, but um, there are really no uh, surviving records of slave auctions and sales in Charleston. Um, There might have been at some point, but, uh, you know, Charleston has had fires, uh, severe Mm -hmm. fires and earthquakes and what have you. The bottom line is that there just isn't any real documentation on the conduct of slave, the slave business, to use that term, in Charleston. Now we know that you know there were uh, there was one or two main places in the city where slaves were auctioned, and uh, if you've read the book, you know toward the end there's a very poignant. account of a slave auction uh, written by a British visitor. Um, and it's something that Kizzel probably would have read in, in, the, in his newspaper back in Freetown in the 1820s. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, we just don't really know much about the, the actual workings of the business. We know something about the how the ships were brought in, how the quarantine operated on Sullivan's Island. Um, 
if you read the newspapers of the time, you'll see the advertisements for auctions and sales and what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is some information on prices. So <clears throat> you can piece things together, but it would have been much better, of course, to have written documents, uh, insurance policies, that sort of thing, uh, to give it a, a much better picture. One thing that I found interesting was that uh, if you were a slave merchant in Charleston at that time, that was a position of very high esteem and repute mm-hmm. within the white society. Um, if you were just an ordinary storekeeper, uh, you were down at the bottom rung. So being a slave merchant was, was really considered to be the uh, – uh, you were at the top rung of the, the local economy. Which is quite interesting in and of itself, the, the 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 manner in which they would aspire to be at the top of the uh, society as a slave merchant. Quite right. interesting, quite interesting. Well, we're going to take a quick break and come back and talk about the Revolutionary War. Come back in one minute, okay? at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Bennett, and co-host, Natan Kemp, and you're listening to Kevin Lawther. Uh, Kevin Lawther has just shared with us just some basic insight into slavery in Charleston and exactly what happened to John Kissel. And now we're going to move into a discussion about the Revolutionary War. Well, let's, well, just tell us, I mean, we understand that John Kissel fought in the Revolutionary War. But just what was going on at that time by him making the decision to go to the British rather than with the Americans? Well, in in Charleston, of course, when Charleston finally fell to the British in 1780, uh, the war had been going on for several years, and the British finally took the city um, in May of 1780. Now, there were about 5,000 slaves living in Charleston at that time, only a handful of free blacks, uh, by the way. And many of those people probably uh, understood the the equation, let's put it, uh, very clearly. Uh, The British seemed to be winning. They had all the the power, and it made sense to... uh, either run away from your master or mistress 
and join the British if you could. Or in some cases, your owner might, uh, if they were loyalists, uh, offer you uh, as somebody who could serve with the British and the loyalist forces uh, for the duration of the conflict. Now, we don't know precisely what prompted Kizil to join the British, whether his mistress uh, might have been a loyalist. I think she was probably a patriot or maybe neutral. But all we know from Kizil, from his telling this British governor years later, is that he joined the British Army probably as a, a servant to an officer, and he later described himself as a soldier. But I, I don't believe that Kizil actually shouldered arms uh, or fought in an actual combat situation. He was at the Battle of King's Mountain uh, in October of 1780, which was a pivotal battle in the Revolution uh, where the mm-hmm. Patriots defeated the, the Loyalists. And Kizil at that point was probably taken prisoner along with several hundred uh, loyalists who were at that battle, but most of them were either released or escaped, and Kizzle, uh probably made his way back to Charleston uh, in company with one or more officers. Um, he would not have been able to travel on his own. It just would have been too dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, so <clears throat> there are records of blacks who served in the on the Patriot side of the Revolution, and even some who served on the Loyalist side. And there are several books that have been written about this, and these can be consulted by those interested. Uh, Kizil does not appear in any of those records, and he does not appear in any of the British military muster records either, which I consulted in uh, England. But that doesn't really tell us anything because the records were not always kept uh, accurately, and many of them were lost. So we have Kizil's word that he was at the Battle of King's Mountain, and people I've talked to, historians of the Revolution, agree that, you know, why would he have just picked the Battle of King's Mountain and just said, oh, I was at this battle, unless he was really there. Mm -hmm. So um, we have to believe that he was at that battle, that he smelled the the smoke and heard the groans of the dying. And he probably was with the commanding officer, uh, a British officer named Patrick Ferguson, when he was killed uh, leading his troops. And so it must have been a a very memorable experience for the young man. He would would have been about 20 at that point. And when you say these are his words, is this a letter? Is this testimony? Where are you hearing those words? His the various uh, stories he told, you know, how he was taken as a slave and so forth. This was all recounted to a particular British governor mm-hmm. in eight in eighteen ten, mm-hmm. uh, when Kizil at that point would have been a fifty year old man. And this governor uh, wrote a fairly detailed account of Kizil's life as told by Kizil. And this was actually uh, published uh, along with some of Kizil's own writings in London in 1812. 
and again 12 years later. Um, so this is a, one of the sources that we use for reconstructing Kizzle's life. Right, yes, which is which is absolutely wonderful that you would even have that to reconstruct his life. Well, just could you give us some uh, insight as to why many slaves in the southern states chose not to flee to the British during the Revolutionary War? Well, I think you can probably guess at some of them. I mean, first of all, uh, you have family ties. Um, And those those were very powerful. So for a man who is quote-unquote married um, and has children either on the plantation, on his plantation or another one, uh, it, it would be very difficult uh, just to walk away from that relationship. Uh, you had the fear of the unknown. Uh, there was a lot of violence and to just walk off, in a, in a sense, uh, into the midst of that was certainly daunting. Um, in a few cases, at least, you probably had a sense of loyalty that slaves had to their owners. And there is one one example of this that uh, I mentioned in the book. So that's something that you, know, you have to factor in. And then finally... Um, you know, the, the slaves were watching very carefully what the patriots were doing and also what the loyalists and the British were doing. Mm-hmm. The British, the British <clears throat> although they were encouraging slaves to come to their side, to their ranks, they also were making very plain in various ways that they had no intention of tampering with slavery once they had won the, the war. And in writing this book, you know, my my assumption was in many many cases that uh, slaves were smart uh, and very very uh, protective of their own security and their family security, mm-hmm. and they would have sized up this, the situation very very carefully. So some may have said, well, we're not so sure the British are going to win. We're not so sure the British are. Uh, you know, are going to free us. So it wasn't a, a, a cut-and-dried situation that mm-hmm. they faced, and they had to make some very, very difficult calculations. And I can imagine that being quite difficult, uh, to to be in that position, to see both sides at war and trying to decide, if I stay with the patriots, will they let me free or if I go to the other side, will I be free? Or that's right. You know, where do I go? What do I do? Mm-hmm. You know, right. Nathan, any questions from you? Just to follow up, I believe Kevin that you um, stated clearly in your book that the British did not give clear indications of any type of reward to entice slaves to join their side. <clears throat> well. There were a couple of occasions where they did, but uh, or very early in the war. Uh, in fact, even before the, uh, the colonies formally declared independence, uh, <clears throat> the British governor in, in Virginia 
essentially offered freedom. Um, years later, <clears throat> during the war, another British commander did likewise. But <clears throat> the British really never saw, you know, sorted out a, a firm, clear policy of what to do uh, in terms of the slave trade, slavery, and the rewards that might be available to, to blacks who joined uh, the British side. Um, and as I <clears throat> said earlier, uh, the British really had no intention of, of tampering with slavery after the war was over. So uh, they were in a very, very conflicted situation from that standpoint. And that also applied to uh, whether or not to recruit blacks formally into military units. Both the Patriots and the British considered doing this on a, on a large scale and then backed off from doing it at all. So very, very few uh, blacks were recruited, especially in the South, by the Patriots, almost none. You had some serving in militia units in Virginia and places like that. And the British never really went much beyond recruiting a few hundred uh, here and there. So there were a few blacks who fought in combat for the British, but <clears throat> not enough to really make any difference. And I guess um, for slaves, let's say in Charleston during this time period, they're trying to read the tea leaves. Which way should they go? Right. And a lot of times it was probably – don't take any action. Well, certainly up to 1780, that would have been the case. And um, we really don't know how many slaves went over to the British at that time. It was probably uh, at least several hundred and maybe more. Um, but the numbers are, are difficult to pin down. Um, we do know how many uh, blacks were evacuated by the British uh, in 1782 from Charleston. Uh, that was several thousand. So that gives you some sense of the, the magnitude. So it's, it's possible to suggest that the majority of, of um, adult blacks in Charleston at that time probably um, were sympathy, uh, sympathizers of, on the British cause and probably uh, wanted to leave with the British at the end of the revolution. Mm-hmm. However, they had was it a, a false expectation though that by leaving with the British that they would have some degree of freedom or would end up going back to Africa. <clears throat> there was that fear, and <clears throat> there were British officers who were also uh, taking advantage of the situation and, in effect, uh, planning to take slaves or former slaves to the West Indies and, and selling them. Mm-hmm. And some of, some of that actually happened. Uh, it was a very, as you can imagine, in, in, in that environment with uh, the war winding down, the British realizing that they're going to lose. By now, Yorktown has, has happened. Uh, everyone was sort of looking out for himself. 
and uh, it would have been a very, very difficult period for any uh, former slave in that environment. Um, and they would not really have had any clear sense of what their future held for them. Uh, the British really weren't sure where they were going to take them. Ultimately, as you know from the book, uh, many of them were, were brought to New York, which was the British headquarters at the end of the war. And from there, they and thousands of uh, white and black loyalists were evacuated to Nova Scotia and New Brunswick and to a few other places, but principally to Nova Scotia. And that's where Kizzle, uh was evacuated uh, from New York. Now, how were you able to track John Kissel to Nova Scotia? <clears throat> there, well, <laughs> there's a book of Negroes, as it's called, which the British commander in New York uh, prepared, and it's actually called the Book of Negroes, and you can consult this book. And it lists most of the uh, former slaves who were in New York who had joined the British during the Revolution and who were entitled in the uh, view of the British commander at the time to have British protection and to be evacuated uh, from New York. Mm-hmm. Now, Kizzel, you would have assumed that Kizzel would appear in that book. He doesn't. Where he appears is in a uh, document that shows all of the former slaves who had arrived in Nova Scotia uh, in a particular place called Shelburne Mm -hmm. um, in 1782-83. They were mustered in by the Nova Scotian governor in the summer of 1784, uh, there had been a race riot in Shelburne, which is in the southeastern part of Nova Scotia, and this had led the authorities to investigate uh, the conditions under which these former slaves were forced to live. And Kizzle's name and that of his wife, Phyllis, uh, and their two children appear. Well, I'm sorry, the, the children hadn't been born yet, but uh, Kizzle and his wife Phyllis appear in the records of this uh, muster, as it was called. And each individual was asked to explain when he or she was brought to Nova Scotia from New York, what had been promised to them, uh, and so forth. So that's how we know for sure that Kizzle was in Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. And, and the documentation. Uh, is is pretty clear. Now, do you start seeing Kissel kind of rise as uh, an advocate, if you will, uh, or abolitionist, or uh, someone to speak against slavery? Was it in Nova Scotia, or was it when he returned to Sierra Leone? It seems fairly clear that it was after he returned to Sierra Leone. Mm-hmm. Um and again, although he was literate, probably by this time, uh, we don't know of any documents that he wrote while in Nova Scotia. And 
there have been many books written about this experience uh, of the former black, former slaves in Nova Scotia. One of the best books is uh, called Rough Crossings, which came out a few years ago and focuses on the Nova Scotian experience. Um, but Kizzle does not um, appear in any of the, the local records or in any of later records as having taken a leadership role in uh, Nova Scotia. What I think did happen, however, is that by this time he had become a member of the Baptist Church mm-hmm. and was beginning to um, develop himself as a, a preacher. Uh, he came under the influence of a, uh, a very, very fine uh, black Nova Scotian preacher, another former slave. And um, so if you uh, assume that religious life at that time in Nova, in Nova Scotia among the blacks was very, very important, I think it's possible to surmise that that Kizzle was beginning to achieve some sense of, of leadership among his people. But he was not among those who... Uh, made the key decisions, at least not openly, uh, to leave Nova Scotia in 1792 and to go back to Africa. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, much later in his life, he told two American missionaries, uh, when he was about the age of 60, that he believed all blacks in America should come back to Africa, and that Africa was for black people and that, you know, they must come back to reclaim their homeland. Mm-hmm. So it, it's hard to imagine that Kizzel didn't have, even when he was in Nova Scotia, very strong feelings uh, about what was going on and about the experiences that they were facing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the life in Nova Scotia was very hard. They were, although they were technically free, they were basically uh, labor slaves uh, to to whites in Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that that was really the main reason that they decided to emigrate to Sierra Leone. Well, let me see if we have any uh, any of our guests or listeners who would like to ask a question. If you would like to ask a question or make a comment, please call 646-200-0492. O four nine one and press one to speak to the host. That's six four six two zero zero O four nine one and press one to speak to the host. So Kissel has now returned to Freetown. So what can you tell us about the experience in Freetown in Sierra Leone? When the the Nova Scotians, as they're now called, when these emigrants arrived from Nova Scotia, there were about 1,100. When they arrived on the shore of what is now Freetown, there was no town. It was simply bush. They literally had to carve uh, a community from forest. And they did that. And, and establish Freetown as as their home and as the capital of, of their country. Now, 
<clears throat> Sierra Leone at that time was simply the immediate area around uh, the shoreline that they, they occupied. So they created Freetown um, from whole, whole cloth, so to speak, mm-hmm. and literally had to you know, fight the wild animals, fight the snakes, cut the trees, and build shelters. It was quite a daunting task. Oh, it sounds like it was quite a daunting task, no doubt about it. Well, you know, in your in your whole research, did you experience any surprises in researching John Kissel's life, or the, what was the general attitude about the slave trade? Well, one of the uh, things that you learn about the slave trade on the African side is that, and this is nothing not original to my research, but um, there could not have been a slave trade if there had not been uh, a partnership in effect between African slave traders and European slave traders. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a business, and... Um, there's no other way of, of describing it. Um, and although I had known that before I started researching the book, um, you know, when I had to confront this uh, more directly, um, it, it really struck home. Now, this is where Kizzle's own words come into play, because he, uh, in 1810, 1811, wrote a number of reports and letters to this British governor in Freetown um, about his efforts to get the chiefs and his and the people in uh, down the coast a little bit, try to get them to stop trading their people uh, in, into foreign slavery and to uh, see the impact that the slave trade was having on communities and on on the people themselves. Um, Kizzle was very, very direct and very, very clear about how this uh, was happening. And, you know, I quote him to some length in the book. And I, so far as I know, this is the only firsthand account of the slave trade through African eyes that uh, exists uh, to this day, uh, there are other reports that ale- that are alleged to have uh, uh, been made on a first-hand basis, but uh, I think Kizzle's is really the only one that holds water. So that that was really quite sobering. Uh, the other thing that, <clears throat> if if I were to meet John Kizzle today, you know, the the first thing I would ask him is why he did not seek out his own people uh, when he returned to Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be uh, many, many years, uh, more than 20 years, before he would actually find out that his uncle was still living. Uh, Kizzle never, on his own, tried to find his his uh, birth village or his people. And, you know, there obviously were reasons for that but it's not clear uh what was in his mind uh, but the uncle came and found him mm-hmm. and took him back to to his uh, people 
Uh, again, this is about 20 years after they've they've returned that Kizzle returned to Africa. And the only in, instance of this that I found was in a letter that Kizzle wrote uh, to a, a British friend, and uh, quite by accident I found this letter in London. So we can document that this actually happened. Mm-hmm. And and this this is perhaps uh, a, a really amazing story in and of itself because how did his uncle know how to get in touch with him? And well, I guess that's I tell, one of those questions you could ask him. Yeah. You know, well, I tell. I think I know what happened, <clears throat> and uh, I, I describe this in the book <clears throat> when Kizzle was making his tour of, you know, trying to get the chiefs to stop trading in slaves, and at the same time he was confronting some of the white slave traders in the area. This is this is a story that would have uh, rippled out into uh, far into the bush, uh, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 miles. People would have been hearing the story of this, you know, man from the country who had come back to Africa after being a slave and who is now confronting the slave traders. And there must have been something that tipped the uncle off to the fact that this might actually be uh, his his uh, nephew. Mm-hmm. So uh, Kizzle doesn't go into great depth about this, uh, but it must have been an extremely emotional moment when when he was reunited with the uncle because he believed that the uncle had died in the the raid on the village. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, did John Kissel ever live to see slavery outlawed in the British Empire? I'd like to hope so, uh, but the last sight of him we have, the the last documented sight, is in 1830. And he would have been 70 years old at that point. He had actually detained in his village uh, an African who was in, engaged in kidnapping children. Now, mm-hmm. the British the British abolished slavery in the British Empire in 1833. So if Kizil managed to live that long, then he would have been able to celebrate the abolition of of slavery throughout the British Empire. Mm-hmm. But it it would have been a a very very mixed victory because domestic servitude within uh the African communities continued and actually intensified in the the decades to come. So it you know the the British action in abolishing slavery uh really didn't have any effect uh, in in Sierra Leone at that time. Mm-hmm. But you know, when you think about this whole slave trade and what what is the legacy though of this the slave trade and domestic servitude in contemporary West Africa? Well, I again, when I started writing the book, I wasn't thinking about this, but um, as you know, there was a war in Sierra Leone in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. and a war in Liberia, in neighboring Liberia. And the more I've read about those conflicts, um, the more I believe that um, there is a real legacy of the slave trade and domestic servitude 
And one thing that you can see, in fact, Kizzel wrote about this. He talked about the deep fear that people had of their neighbors, even their friends, Mm -hmm. because of the slave trade. Um, And if you read about the causes of the war, it wasn't blood diamonds in Sierra Leone. It was was really a sense among impoverished rural youth that they really had no stake in in the modern Sierra Leonean experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, They'd been deprived of education. They didn't have access to land. They were uh, subjugated by the chiefs. And this all relates back to the institution of domestic servitude. Mm -hmm. And there's another book that came out last year that uh, documented this in terms of what were the motivations of many of the so-called rebels who uh, started attacking villages and, and government posts in Sierra Leone in the early 1990s. So I, I, there needs to be more study of this, but I think the societies in Sierra Leone, also in Liberia, were, were badly damaged, uh, badly traumatized by the slave trade and by domestic servitude. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I've talked to Sierra Leoneans about this and, and some Liberians, and they nod their heads. Uh, it's something that uh, uh, I think they they know is still somehow embedded in their culture, and it's going to be yes. difficult to root out. Yes, I, I, yes, you're, you're so right. You're so right. Well, I noted in your book, uh, Natan, did you have a question? I just wanted to mention there is a question coming out of the chat. Are there any known descendants of John Kizzle in Sierra Leone or in Britain today? Well, the, the short answer is no. Um, the first thing I did when I started my research was to reach out to Sierra Leoneans, uh, both here and in Sierra Leone, to find out if there were any um contemporary uh, Kizzles or other families that might have been linked to Kizzel. And I went to considerable length to do that, and we found no links whatsoever. Um, I've talked to many Sierra Leoneans since the book came out, and nobody can has said, oh, yeah, there's a Kizzel here or a Kizzel there. So unfortunately, that that seems to be a, a dead end. Now that doesn't mean that at some point we won't discover that there is somebody who that uh, can come forward and say, "Oh yes, this story was told uh, by my great great grandfather, and has come down to us over the over the decades." Um, so unfortunately, we were not able to find any any real contact at that level. But I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give up. I mean, you, you never know. That's what makes well, historical research so much fun. That's right. And in fact, one of the uh, noted researchers you actually mentioned him, Joseph Apollo. Am I right. pronouncing that correctly? Correct. He did mention the Gullah connection. Correct. Uh, between Sierra Leone and coastal South Carolina and Georgia. Right. Right. Well, that's a very strong connection. A lot has been done in in recent decades to document it. 
um, <clears throat> people who know about the Penn Community Center on St. Helena Island in South Carolina would would know that. <clears throat> um, there have been a number of films made and and books written about this, so uh, those who are interested in, in researching that connection, they'll, they'll certainly find plenty out there. That's right. Well, I certainly want to thank you so much. We're we're wrapping. I I just want to just mention. I see a comment coming in from Evan Blakes, and he said, "You know, Dory is similar to Prince Abdul Rahman of Natchez, Mississippi. Uh, some Africans were kept abreast of, of what was going on back home, and Abdul Rahman never returned home. And slave trading societies were created in Africa to produce a market of slaves. And so I want to just." Thank the listeners, and also I definitely want to thank you uh, for just sharing this story of John Kissel tonight. And for everyone else, just thank you for joining us. And remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday and also watch for the Black Progen Live with host Nika Smith. Thank you so much for joining research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. And also check out my services at BB's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. And my website is www.geniebroots.com. I look forward to all of you joining me next week. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone.